Hi, listeners. I'm excited to bring you this week's haunting episode from Maine. If you are able and you can go to iTunes and give us a review, we'd really appreciate it. These reviews help new listeners find us. If you find the time, you'll be helping the show and we'll give you a call out in a future episode, thanking you for your support. The more listeners we have, the more episodes we'll produce. So let your friends know if you like us and tell them to give us a listen. Thanks so much for your continued support and to the many who've already left us reviews. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that each episode of Enigma is produced remotely. What with COVID-19 going on, we wanted to let you know that we are safe. We truly hope each one of you is safe as well. Now, on with the show. The state of Maine is known for many things. Vast forests and rolling hills fill most of the state. But it is the coastline that attracts a majority of the attention. Stretching over 3,200 miles and dotted with hundreds of islands, the rocky coast of Maine draws thousands of visitors every year. With gorgeous views, rich history, and lobsters aplenty, it is no wonder the state's license plates call it vacation land. Maine also has another, albeit unofficial, nickname, the Lighthouse State. Its long length of jagged coast is home to over 60 lighthouses. They light the way for ships passing in the night and when the weather is at its worst. People to this day flock to see these beautiful nautical structures, the stoic towers reaching high above the crashing ocean waves below. The state's first light, the Portland Headlight, was built in Cape Elizabeth in 1791 and is still standing today. The same can be said about the longevity for many of the lighthouses in the state. Though today all of them are automated, for many years, it was the duty of a lighthouse keeper to care for and tend to the light so the ships may pass through the local waters safely. It was not a job taken lightly and was not for the faint of heart. For most lighthouses in Maine, the outsides are painted a brilliant white with the lantern section on top a deep black. And just like the aesthetic of these structures, the stories told about them share a similar duality. They have been the setting of many stories in Maine, of real events and local legends, of triumph and tragedy. On this episode of Enigma, we will look at a few of the different lighthouse stories Maine has to offer before focusing in on one tale of mystery in particular. Will they be tales of hope or horror? Like a ship sailing the waters on a foggy night, we'll search for the light to guide us, to show us the way. But beware, the waters are rough and the shores rocky. And by the time you see the warning of the lighthouse beacon, it may already be too late to change course. 
I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is Enigma. Like most good legends, you seem to hear the same ones over and over. There are a few lighthouses that claim to have ghosts, usually of old sailors or past lighthouse keepers. Others tell stories of phantom women, usually with some type of distinct clothing like a white dress or a red scarf. Like any place with a long history, there are bound to be similar types of stories. But there are other tales as well, unique tales to these lighthouses, tales that give them life and character. One of the most chilling tales took place at the Owl's Head Lighthouse along the mid-coast of Maine. The tower itself is not that impressive to look at, standing a stout 30 feet tall. It is assisted in its duties, however, by the 70-foot cliff it stands atop of. And what it lacks in physical presence, it makes up for in reputation. Some consider this to be the most haunted lighthouse in Maine, as it plays host to a number of odd tales. One in particular occurred during a fierce winter storm in December of 1850. A handful of ships ran aground in the storm, but a nearby schooner was anchored. The captain was ashore during the storm, but aboard the ship was the mate, Richard Ingram, his fiancée Linda Dyer, and a seaman by the name of Roger Elliott. When the cable holding the ship snapped in the violent storm, the ship crashed on the rocks of Owl's Head Island. The three tried to wait out the storm, but they were quickly freezing in the cold. Elliot, braving the terrible weather, was able to stagger to the lighthouse on the island. Nearly dead, he fought off the chill long enough to tell the keeper that there were still people aboard the wrecked ship. The keeper tended to the man as best he could, and then rounded up a team of men for a rescue party. They carefully made it down to the boat, but when they got there, they were too late. The couple were frozen solid under a layer of ice. The team did not give up, though. They were able to free the massive ice from the ship and took it ashore. They carefully chipped away at the ice until the bodies were free. Then, they slowly did what they could do to delicately warm the man and the woman, working their arms and legs in an attempt to restore blood flow. And to everyone's surprise, it worked. Miss Dyer was the first to regain consciousness. The woman who just a few hours before was frozen solid and lifeless, now breathing again. About an hour later, Mr. Ingram awoke. It would be months later, but eventually the two fully recovered. The couple later married and had children, whom they could pass their story on to. Unfortunately, though, Mr. Elliot, the man who fought against the elements to get the rescue team, did not, soon dying from his exposure to the wind and cold. Then there's the Wood Island Lighthouse, and its most well-known story, where a keeper had to go above and beyond the call of duty. Wood Island is just off the coast of southern Maine, not too far from Portland. 
Its lighthouse is also rather modest, rising 47 feet off the ground and another 24 above the water. The island, though, is sizable enough to support other structures and people beyond just those tending the lighthouse. And they are the subjects of this story. In 1896, a fight broke out between two drifters, Howard Hobbs and William Moses, who were renting a shack on the island, and Officer Frederick Milliken, who they were renting it from. The men were drunk, and the situation got out of hand quickly. In the middle of the dispute, one of the men, Hobbs, shot Mr. Milliken. Then, after realizing what he had done, he tried to help the officer, but it was too late. Hobbs then went to the only other structure on the island, the lighthouse. There, the keeper Thomas H. Orcutt heard the man's story before rushing to help the injured officer. But no one could help Mr. Milliken, and he died soon after. Upon hearing this, Hobbs returned to the shack he was renting, the one that caused the whole dispute, and fired his gun again. This time, it was pointed at himself. The murder-suicide was well-known on the island for years after. Some tellings of the tale go on to say that the next keeper at the lighthouse reported seeing and hearing ghosts on the island, most likely that of the fallen officer Fred Milliken or his murderer Howard Hobbs. Others say it was a fisherman who lived for years in solitude on the island that saw the ghosts. The stories say that eventually the sightings became too much for them. In the tale of the lighthouse keeper, he actually threw himself from the tower to end his life. But of the fisherman, it is said that he fled to stay on the mainland, but there was no escaping it, and he threw himself out a window, falling to the street below. Even more gruesome, and perhaps the most quintessential lighthouse story, comes from the Seguin Lighthouse. It is also, however, probably the least rooted in fact. This lighthouse, while the tower stands only 53 feet tall, has a sense of height staggering 180 feet above sea level, making it the tallest in the state. As the tale goes, it was in the mid-1800s that a lonely lighthouse keeper and his wife took over the duties of the Seguin Light, which is located across the Costco Bay from Portland. Life on the island was not exactly what the new keeper's young wife thought it would be, and over time she became bored. In an attempt to make her happy, the keeper arranged for a piano to be brought over from the mainland. It was no easy task raising such an apparatus onto the rocky island and getting it inside their quarters. But with some help, the task was completed and for the time being, his wife was content. That attitude did not last long though, as the missus needed sheet music to play and the only ones available to her were the pages for one song, which were sent along with the piano itself. Her husband would have sent for more, but rough winter weather moved in and cut them off from the rest of the world. Nevertheless, his wife continued to play her song. 
She practiced over and over and over again. She did this hour after hour after day after day during that long winter. Outside, the waves below lashed against the rocks, and the wind howled against the thin walls of the house. Inside, the light in the tower turned round and round, and the clinking of the piano keys never ceased. Their already repetitive life now became a monotonous nightmare. Day after day, and night after night, cooped up on the small island in such tight quarters, the lighthouse keeper started to come unraveled. Finally, one frigid night, he snapped and grabbed an axe. He splintered the piano in one powerful sweep, but he didn't stop there. He hacked at the instrument, sending keys and strings and wood flying every which way until he finally rested and the music was over. But the horror of that night was not. His wife was obviously quite upset at the outburst and screamed at her husband. His rage peaked again, perhaps still hearing an echo of that cursed song, and he turned the axe on her, ending her life. Only afterwards, in the dreaded quiet, did he realize what he had done. And in his grief, the lighthouse keeper could not stand to live with the horrors he committed, and he took his own life. And that is how they stayed. The grisly scene not discovered until after the light had gone out and someone was sent to investigate. But the story doesn't end there. Like most similar stories, there's always a reminder that lingers after such a brutal event. And for the many tourists that visit Seguin Island every year, they all listen for that same thing, hoping to hear those sad sounds of the past. Because, as legend goes, if you listen closely, you can still hear the faint sound of piano music on the wind. There is one more story I'd like to share with you about the lighthouses of Maine. Six miles off the southern coast is a cluster of islands known as the Isle of Shoals. It consists of nine islands, four of which actually belong to the state of New Hampshire. Few people have heard of these islands, and if they have, it is usually associated with a particularly dark event that occurred there. This would be the brutal double-axe murders of 1873 that occurred on Smutty Nose Island. While Smutty Nose Island is the setting of our last lighthouse story, the murders that happened there are not a part of it, and actually occurred 60 years after the tale that you're about to hear. And while there is still some mystery surrounding that case and the killer who was convicted and hung for the crime, there is another mysterious legend to the island that brings us here today. It is the story of the Spanish sailors' graves. The wind was howling and the temperatures were bone chilling. Snow flew through the night air, cutting visibility to almost nothing. The waves rose and crashed, thundering in the vicious winter storm. The ship 
was but a plaything in the water, being tossed about as it tried in vain to navigate the treacherous waters. It never stood a chance, and even if the sailors knew they were approaching the isles off the coast of Maine, they had no way to see and avoid their rocky shores. The hard wood smashed along the rough, jagged rocks, the ship and its contents scattered in the surf. Not all of the men died on impact. Many survived at least a few agonizing moments longer in the frigid water. Others managed to climb up the rocky edge to the island's surface, but even there they would not survive the elements long. And then the unthinkable happened. They saw a light. What few men had made it on the island crawled with what little strength they had left towards the beacon. They were soaked and freezing, but they had hope. They could not see much in the storm, but they saw this light, and it called to them. But it was too late and too cold. By the time the sun came up the next morning, all 14 men of the Spanish ship were dead. The ship is known in story and legend as the Segunto from the port city of Cadiz in the south of Spain. The ship was sailing to America in 1813 when it met its fate along the rocky shores of Smutty Nose Island at the dead of night on January 14th. The bodies of the Spanish sailors were found over the course of many days by the island's owner, Sam Halley, who, along with his family, were the island's sole inhabitants. It is said that Halley, after recovering the bodies, laid them to rest near his own family plot and marked their graves with head and footstones. While it may seem like just a little-known legend, there is truth to this story. There are reports in the town records of nearby Star Island, which verify many of the facts, but not all. Some of the most debated about details are the number of bodies found, reports ranging from 12 to 16, and oddly enough, the identity of the ship. The Segunto, while being a real ship sailing around the time of the wreck, actually made its way safely to the port according to these records. The actual ship that many believe met its fate in the waters that night was the Conception, also sailing from Cadiz. The man himself, Sam Halley, is said to have made this correction a few years after the fact when addressing the topic in a public hearing. And while many places you see mention this story still referred to the ship by its incorrect name, the marker on Smutty Nose Island in remembrance of the tragedy properly identifies the vessel. The other issue with this story is just who was it that found the sailors? Based on his tombstone, Sam Halley died a good two years before the ship was said to have crashed into the island. Perhaps history has him confused with his son, who was also named Sam Halley. While it would be nice to attribute the story to the elder Halley, who has quite a reputation among the Isles, it was likely the younger, if anyone, who found the bodies of the sailors. But what does this have to do with lighthouses? Well, it's in large part because of this story that a lighthouse on the Isle of Shoals was then built. The light which still stands to this day was built in 1821 
on nearby White Island, which, while still part of the Shoals, sits across the border in New Hampshire. And while this was the first official light to stand as a beacon for the Isles, there was another that preceded it and played a big part in this story. This was not an actual lighthouse, but a simple lantern kept lit on a high window on Smutty Nose Island, and it burned there for more than 30 years before the White Island Light was built, a sign that those living on the Isles knew how treacherous those waters were and did what they could to give warning. The lantern, as it was, sat in a window of a house on Smutty Nose Island, the house of the elder Sam Halley, and it is said that the light was lit on the fateful night the Spanish ship crashed along the rocks. The flame, however, not bright enough to cut through the harsh winter storm and warn the sailors aboard of the dangers ahead. But if the legends are true, the light was seen. The details were not printed in official records, but at that time, few often were, especially on such sparsely populated islands far off the mainland coast. These details were told by the poet Celia Thaxter, who grew up and spent most of her life among the Isles. She knew the younger Sam Halley, though it was brief, and her father was a keeper at the White Island Lighthouse. In her telling of the story, a few of the bodies of the sailors were found quite close to the Halley house. They made it as close as the short stone wall near the home. They could have called for help, and given different circumstances, the Halley family could have hurt them. But on that night, the ferocious winds quickly carried their cries away. Drawn in by a light in the dark and relentless storm, they were crawling towards hope, towards the lantern lit in the Halley's window. A beacon meant for warning, but had become their only chance of salvation, which sadly they fell just short of. It is interesting to note, while it may have nothing to do with the story, that Sam Halley built a breakwater just a few years after the shipwreck connecting Smutty Nose and the nearby Malaga Islands. He paid for this project with silver bars he apparently found under a flat rock on the island. Could they have been pillaged from the shipwreck after there were no survivors? There are claims that this type of practice was not uncommon among the islands. Other theories go in a completely different direction. One of the other popular legends of the isles is that the famous pirate Blackbeard was known to the area and that Smutty Nose was the location of his honeymoon with Mary Osmond, the last of his many wives. Stories hint that the likes of Blackbeard or Captain Kidd buried treasure on the islands. Could the silver bars have been hidden pirate treasure, left but never reclaimed? These stories seem fanciful, but the silver bars, if they indeed existed, had to come from somewhere. The timing, while not being too suspect, does make you wonder if the silver, knowingly or not, came from the ill-fated Spanish ship. Though it was not listed as part of the cargo, could it have been on the ship for some other reason? Or are we just trying to add more mystery to a story with enough of its own already? After all, the evidence supporting the story is suspect. 
research into the supposed graves of the Spanish sailors has brought up new doubts. Though many stand fast and forbid any digging up of the alleged graves, more non-invasive techniques were used to put the legend to the test, this coming in the form of ground-penetrating sonar. A team of archaeologists came to the island to study the area where the sailors are said to have been buried. What they found did to legends what most science does. There was no evidence of any soil disturbance at all. And the ground itself lent little possibility to the idea of graves of any sort being dug there, especially in the harshness of winter. This begs the question, did a ship even crash there at all? With at least a few official reports, one would think that the shipwreck had to happen in one way or another. The details that followed can be debated, but it certainly seems like this story did not just spawn out of nothing. Perhaps the story of the Spanish sailors did not happen exactly as the story tells. After all, one of the primary sources for some details comes from Celia Thaxter, the poet that grew up on these islands hearing these stories. Maybe there was a shipwreck, and through some retelling, some childish fantasy, and some artistic license, the story evolved. And now, the light pointing to the truth of what really happened has gone out. The following are the first three stanzas of The Spaniard's Graves by Celia Thaxter. Go, sailors. Did sweet eyes look after you the day you sailed away from sunny Spain? Bright eyes that followed fading ship and crew melting in tender rain? Did no one dream of that drear night to be, wild with the wind, fierce with the stinging snow, when on yon granite point that frets the sea, the ship met her death blow? Fifty long years ago these sailors died, no one knows how many sleep beneath the waves, fourteen gray headstones rising side by side point out their nameless graves. Though the jagged coast of Maine may have been something fearsome for sailors to navigate at night all those years ago, not all of it was darkness. Guided by the stars, the ship slipped through the black water hoping and praying to make it to their destination safely. And it was the lighthouses and their keepers that heard and answered those prayers. Today, though, the role of a lighthouse keeper is all but extinct in the United States. Technology has advanced, not only in lighthouses, but on the ships navigating the waters as well. Though lighthouses are still very necessary for maritime travel, they do so unattended, but not entirely abandoned. These ancient lighthouses, now automated, still hold in them all the history which came before. But what is the legacy of these lighthouses today? Is it the countless number of lives they saved on the ships that safely avoided these dangerous waters? Or is it those that were not as fortunate, those that they couldn't save, and the other grisly tales that took place at these secluded structures. Can it be a bit of both? 
We see these buildings now and marvel at them, taking in their beauty, imagining the idea of peaceful island solitude, making sure the lamp stays lit. When, in reality, life was harsh and the job never ceased, tending to the light night after night, day after day, in some of the harshest and loneliest conditions was brutal. And maybe that is why so many of these stories fall on the darker side. Maybe that was the truth of it. Perhaps that is why we need these stories, whether they are all true or not. Like the structures themselves, the stories are the legacy of these lighthouses, shining through the fog of history to show us how far we've come, but also warn us of the dangers up ahead. A legacy of light in the darkness, of life and death. A legacy that changes with each telling of the story, adding new twists and turns. A legacy burning with a flame bright enough that not even time can extinguish it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Enigma. If you'd like more information on this story, you can check out our website, thisisenigma.com. We've got photos of many of the lighthouses in this story, along with Celia Thaxter's haunting poem. You can also find links to our sources there. If you'd like to hear more Enigma, then we need your help. We all have lives and jobs outside the podcast that keep us busy. Enigma takes hours and hours of research, writing, rewriting, recording, and editing for just one episode. It's a big commitment for everyone involved. Helping us is simple and free. The more listeners and iTunes reviews we receive, the more episodes we'll produce. So please leave us a review and share our stories with your friends and family on social media or in real life. If you have ideas for a story we should cover next, please let us know. This episode of Enigma was written by Corey Greiner and produced by Alex Holscher. Original artwork by Chris Vickery. Enigma is produced in Cape Fear, North Carolina. I'm Rebecca Knight, and this is... Enigma. Enigma.